Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, when we started this project, we were not sure how hard it would be to edit, record everything, and then eventually distribute. But then luckily, someone told us about Anchor. Let me explain. First of all, it's free. Secondly, they have creation tools that will allow you to record and edit directly from your phone or your computer. They distribute your podcast for you. And the best thing is you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, it means that you are a fan of Audio Up's signature brand and our original array of podcasts. But did you know that our founder, Jared Gutstadt, has another original show called Occupational Therapy? It's sort of an extension of what you're listening to right now. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Occupational Therapy wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Jared Goodstad, and welcome to Occupational Therapy. This week, I got to sit down with probably one of the biggest legends that will ever be part of this series. His name is Niall Rogers. He is one of the architects of disco music, although his career is so much more than that. It goes into rock and roll to pop music he's worked with david bowie madonna his band chic uh, he's worked with pharrell daft punk and uh his world beyond just making music is so absolutely incredibly large he was telling me stories about how his music impacted everything from uh, Mandela's experience during apartheid to being part of a new wave of film scoring uh, that happened in Hollywood in the 1980s when he worked on Coming to America and did some really innovative things there. It really checks a lot of boxes for me as someone who uh, loves all the aspects of his career. But we sat down because uh, my business, Audio Up, was working on an NFT that was going to be uh, donating a portion of the proceeds to charity and we were working with Nas on it and as soon as we asked Nas which charity he wanted to donate to he said well Niall has the We Are Family Foundation and it seemed like a no-brainer so Niall came by we opened up the discussion about how uh, the Nas connection came about how it connects to the topic of apartheid and there were some incredible stories this conversation is less about me looking for a job or trying to be the next Nile Rogers because let's face it, I will never be that. I am honored and uh, pleased to uh, have Nile on the show this week and I hope you all enjoy it. Here we go. I'm here with Nile Rogers who uh, is a music legend, an incredible human being and also a very uh, runs an incredible charity organization. We're talking today about this NFT that we did with Nas and your connection to not only the world of Nas and hip hop music, but also how your charity, We Are Family Foundation, uh, has a connection to South Africa, which is where we actually did this incredible concert with Nas. It was not only the 20th anniversary of Illmatic coming out, but the 20th anniversary of apartheid ending. 
Uh, it was an extremely powerful moment to be part of that thing. But your story with South Africa goes way back even before that. Do you tell? Uh, uh, you were telling me before about the story about the connection to Mandela, which is incredible. It's it's so crazy to me. So I am a child of uh, the '60s. So I grew up um, as you know. Uh, revolutionary, whatever you want to call us. First of all, I started out as a peacenik and, oh, well, man, you know, like, don't hurt us. And then after the <laughs> cops beat you up one too many times, I wound up becoming a subsection leader in the Black Panther Party. So I grew up as a, a radical, whatever you want to call us, uh, but, well, you know, servant of the people. So I had um, this certain consciousness that, um, you know, political leaders and very powerful, uh, especially intellectual ones, were my heroes. So if you fast forward from my teens to my professional music life, uh, in about 1991, uh, Nelson Mandela Modibo was, you know, came to New York City and he came to Robert De Niro's restaurant and he walks in the door and we're all standing there like in a receiving line as if we're with a queen or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so possibly awesome. more important than the queen. No, you know, tr to us, <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, a former Black Panther. Yeah. No, this was like, you know, Incredible. this was very um, emotional and powerful. And he walks in, and it's just so sweet. He sees Eddie Murphy, and he goes, Eddie, <laughs> and it's like all of a sudden, the artist in the room meant so much to him, and. I was blown away. I was just completely blown away. And he was gracious and talked to everybody. Now, granted, it wasn't like a thousand people there. So it was De Niro's restaurant. It was however many people could fit in there. And so when he gets around to me, the person who's telling him, you know, he's, I guess the person's got notes about, you know, mm -hmm. who's ever at the table. So when he arrives at me, um, there's a couple of great stories. Um, the guy says, you know, he's the guy who wrote Africa. And they, they, he's like, Africa? He wrote Africa? What they were thinking of is we have a song in Sheik called Le Freak. Mm -hmm. And people who speak French, and you know, Africans, they think we're going, Africa. Oh my gosh. Check it out. La Freak, c'est Sheik. I'll never be able to and unhear they go, that. Africa. La Freak, c'est Sheik. So many, many times, and she's seen it, many times, you know, I'll, you know, I get to an airport or something like that, and people walk up, yo, he wrote Africa, he wrote Africa. So that was pretty cool. I was like, okay, I wrote Africa, you know, but I, you can't explain to Madiba, no, I'm not really, yeah. it's not really Africa, it's about a dance called mm -hmm. the So um, then the person tells him, but he also wrote, we are family, and that's, when I get the shock of my life. Uh, imagine Nelson Mandela telling you that one of the most powerful things that ever happened to him was hearing the white prison guards singing a song with black girls talking about they were going to be a family together. They were going, we are family. And he could tell the voices on the radio were black. They didn't play black artists on the white stations in South Africa during apartheid. So he said that it gave him hope that uh, South Africa would not be under apartheid forever. And the other thing that was amazing 
was that then he finds out that I wrote the score to Coming to America. So he walks in, he sees Eddie Murphy, he makes all those connections. But then um, I, I wrote the score to Coming to America, all the songs, as well as this, you know, the, the orchestral score. And something that most people don't know is that written in the script of Coming to America is the song, the opening of the film, is The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Mm -hmm. In the jungle, the quiet jungle, the lion sleeps. So John Landis, who's a brilliant film director, um, you know, he's sold on it. It's in the script, right? So we record The Lion Sleeps Tonight. We put it in. And every day we watch the dailies and it starts with doo -doo 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 in the jungle. So one day I say to John, I say, look, John, I don't know how to say this to you. I mean, you're the director, and he's a genius. I said, I don't know how to say this to you, but um, I once saw Richard Pryor in a dramatic role, and he did a great job. But because black people, we don't have that many real stars, and right now, Eddie Murphy is bigger than Tom Cruise. Um, maybe if we do the song in the Zulu language... That might be really clever because what will happen is that when we first see Eddie, we won't think of him as the dazzling urbanite who uses his skills to get out of every situation. And uh, John Landis looks at me and says, you need to take filmmaking 101. That's a fucking crazy idea. <laughs> now, John is cool, though, but, you know, he's John yeah, Landis, yeah. right? You need a filmmaking 101. And I said, you know what, John? I took black 101. I'm telling you. Every black person in the movie theater, when Richard Pryor was hurt and he was in traction, we all cracked up because mm -hmm. he looked funny to yep. us. I said, but I'm telling you, man, we just got a great opportunity here to tell the backstory before we see Eddie's face. And the way that Coming to America opens, you see the Paramount Mountain. Mm -hmm. Camera pulls in tight, goes above the mountain, behind the mountain, across the African veld, into the palace, down the hall into the prince's bedroom. Mm -hmm. A long music cue, well before he goes, today is your 21st birthday, it is my 21st birthday, you know. <laughs> well before that. Now, with the lion sleeps tonight, everybody laughs. But with my cue, they don't laugh. Brings you into a world. But here's what most people don't know. I did that all behind his back. I went to the head of the studio because I was a journeyman, a complete novice. I did not know the rules of Hollywood. I didn't know that a director could totally lock even the head of the studio out for a certain period of time. But I convinced Sherry Lansing. I told her the Richard Pryor story, and she bought it. So I flew in a whole black musical troupe because my musical history, I knew that, that South Africans didn't have rights, so they couldn't copyright anything. So I knew that The Lion Sleeps Tonight was a ripoff of a song called Mbobwe, which means lion in the Zulu language. So every day, John Landis was accustomed to seeing when we were watching mm -hmm. daily, so we had to watch dailies every day. And so one particular day, I had stayed up all night, flown these dudes in from South Africa, recorded Mbobwe in there. So now, movie opens up, Paramount logo, mountain the whole bit, camera pulls in tight, and instead of hearing, do, 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 he hears silence, and then he hears, Mbowe, ah, Mbowe, ah, 
and then it gets long. And I swear to you, at that moment, I thought I was going to get fired. John Landis was sitting in his chair in the middle of the, the, the screening room. And this is all he does. I'll never forget this moment. He does exactly this. This is verbatim. That's why you're Nile Rodgers. You're a genius. I fucking love it. It's great. Oh, my God. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I did not. I've never heard that story before. That's insane. Yeah. And I went, but John, that's what I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> and then he said to me, Nile, I'm going to explain something to you about music scoring. Every great director looks at a film and you put the music in, they go, is it better or is it worse? Yeah. Before, we thought that was great. This is better. Done. End of story. Move on. (laughs) That was it. End of story. But the one thing that that I saw that was so powerful when I was at that Nas event in South Africa, before we went on, you know, uh, Timbaland had DJed, uh, Wiz Khalifa was performing, and I was just thinking, it didn't really dawn on me, because I'm a generation younger, how how sort of the world had changed dramatically in those 20 years. And while, you know, I'm sitting out there in the crowd and I'm like, I wonder what they're going to play in between. They were playing Chris Brown Loyal. And, I, right. and, and I, at the time, I was just like, wow, hip-hop is the language of the world. Right. We are so far away from a club where this would be coming in. And I truly think that, you know, political action changes the world, but also art changes the world. Tell me the story about the screening of uh, Coming to America and how they handle the distribution in South Africa. So what happened, and, and, and you know, I got these stories from um, Modiba all in the same night. And imagine me, I'm, I'm in awe of this guy, and now he's in awe of me. I'm like going, this is so topsy-turvy. It makes no sense. You are Nelson Mandela. You spent all these years in jail. You come out, you're the kindest, nicest intellectual most wonderful person in the world and now you're telling me something that Harry Belafonte had told me years before and now he's confirming it Harry Belafonte told me that artists are the gatekeepers of truth Mm -hmm. and the truth was that when coming to America premiered in South Africa Paramount Pictures um, just insisted it was a mandate that if you want to see this film which we think you're going to love if you want to see this film you have to integrate the theater that it premieres in years before apartheid is over oh yeah oh no we're in we're in the thick of apartheid you know um and and maldiva said that that was so powerful it resonated across the entire african continent he said, every country knew about this. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. I'm like, I'm accustomed to people talking about Huey Newton, Che Guevara, blah, 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 and the struggle and the blood and the brothers and Fred Hampton. And, and he's talking about movies and, and songs. And he's talking about what I did. And I'm like blown away. And I wrote Africa. Yeah, well, yeah, I wrote Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that is that, I, 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 that is incredible, and you know, for me, you know, you always talk about being a journeyman. I've looked at my career as being very lucky to meet incredible people, and I've actually, over time, you know, been lucky enough to work with people whose music have changed the world. And Nas, 
being one of those people. And, you, you know, what's your relationship with Nas? Because as soon as we mentioned that, hey, we're looking for a charitable component for this NFT with Illmatic, immediately they're just like, oh, we know what to do. We want to do the We Are Family Foundation. I was like, <laughs> well, that was quick. I was like, can I tell you about cancer? <laughs> but they, uh, they, they, so what's that connection? See, Nas and I have this sort of real spiritual New Yorker kind of connection. Um, when we first met, we, we probably were just talking about music and jazz holistically and the way that, um, that music evolved. It's really interesting, and I don't mean this uh, in a way where I'm sort of like putting down people or anything like that, mm. but there's, there are a lot of uh, artists that don't have um, a good perception of, of of the music that came before them. They don't have great clarity. Like you know, I was talking to someone the other day, and in a strange way to him, you know, music start, started with Jay Z or something. I mean, mm -hmm. like that's yeah. as far back as his musical history goes. But when Nas and I first started talking, the depth of his knowledge and and his appreciation for um, under, his understanding of how music morphed into hip hop, how you know you could see the direct path mm -hmm. and the the level of respect that we had for each other the first night that we were just sort of you know chopping it up together, it was amazing, and you could feel that it was it was an honest kind of thing. It wasn't just like Yo, because you, you wrote good times. It wasn't like my life was all about good times. It was actually about everything that I had learned prior to writing good times. Mm -hmm. It was about, you know, I had to do this and I had to experiment with that and I had to do this. And I was playing with Luther Vandross and then, and then Sesame Street and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And he was one of those type of intellectual artists that, that understood that had I not done, pardon me, he was one of those intellectual artists that understood that had I not done Sesame Street and Luther Vandross and, you know, and all of this stuff in New York City, mm -hmm. I'm doing fine. And all of those things that I did prior to writing Good Times, Good Times couldn't have existed. It wasn't like I just pulled that out of my hat. That was an evolution in my growth. It was me still doing a progression that was a one to four type of movement. But how did we make it interesting? Because now this was going to be our third lead-off single, and all of our big lead-off singles were one to four progressions. How the hell do we do it a third time and make it important? Yeah, good times, and then that wound up becoming the, I would say, in a strange way, the the accidental foundation of commercial hip hop, because then Rappers Delight came, um, and. They sampled our strings, and the, the thing that's funny when I tell people about the the lawsuit that wound up never happening, that I say no, it was actually a simple copyright infringement lawsuit. And they said, "What are you talking about?" Like, I said, "No, because the baseline wasn't exactly the same. We could tell that that wasn't mm -hmm. us playing, but what we really knew was whenever the strings went ew mm -hmm. and it got really live." Those were my strings, and that was the New York Philharmonic, and I paid a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, I say in the world of music, there's no such thing as accidents. I love adventurous spirits and adventurous minds. You know, at Pixar, the model was show early, show often, and 
you know, being able to say yes to moments and the fact that like, um, you know, Nas as an adventurous mind said yes to working with this string ensemble he'd never heard of for this thing, but the, you know, idea that like you creating that song becomes the big bang for hip hop. Everyone, you, you're modest and you say it's an accident, but I don't believe there are accidents. I believe you put it out in the universe and the universe finds these things and it just brings it into reality. So, I mean, whether it's, you know, changing the world through, you know, uh, the music you've put on the airwaves that make its way all the way to Johannesburg or to South Africa or, you know, uh, uh, the music you did on Sesame Street and even saying yes to new opportunities because many people are so concerned with legacy. Um, I've found that that moment when I first heard Get Lucky with Daft Punk, I went, yes, yes, yes. Now people who didn't watch the Behind the Music or read the book will understand what this is. And, you know, almost like Daft Punk are like gatekeepers of musical history. Right. That's a, That record's a disco record, like through and through the whole, yeah. the production. And those things are like built to last. It's like so much of music now is New Music Friday, Here and Gone, but the big things... Your catalog, the Nas Illmatic record, that stands, the, you know, why are they celebrating that 20 years later? Because it's important and it's so woven with the right things. And it touches people's souls. Mm -hmm. And that's what um, I wound up learning. I was a jazz snob, mm -hmm. and this is totally a true story. I was uh, under the tutelage of a genius named Ted Dunbar. And Ted Dunbar came, you know, from the West Montgomery School. He replaced John McLaughlin in the Tony Williams Lifetime when John McLaughlin yeah. left. So you could tell, you know, what kind of musician he was. Uh, and Ted was my teacher, uh, part of Jazzmobile, but he was also my private teacher. And uh, one day I was uh, going out to do, you know, the typical pickup gigs that we did, $15 a night, $20 a night. And one day I was going for a lesson and I had a real sourpuss look on my face. And um, Ted said, hey, blood, what's wrong with you, man? You're, nah, you're always the happy guy. What's happening? So I thought I was getting ready to score brownie points with him. Hmm. And I said, well, Ted, you know, I got to play this, you know, this bullshit gig tonight. He was like, a bullshit gig? Well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, it's just all pop tunes. You know, we don't get to play anything straight ahead. And he was like going... No, I don't quite understand you. And I said, well, look at my set list. Uh, set starts with uh, Sugar Sugar by the Archies. And he said, yeah, so what's, what's the problem? Now I realize I'm in trouble. <laughs> he said, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. Sugar Sugar mm -hmm. by the Archies and Ted Dunbar is asking me what's the problem? And I said, uh, well, you know, like that's like bullshit bubblegum pop. And he said bullshit bubblegum pop. He said, nah, do you know that Sugar Sugar has been number one mm -hmm. for about three weeks now? And I said, yeah. Number one for three weeks. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. He says, so let me make sure I'm hearing you right, young blood. Those millions of people who bought that record <laughs> were wrong, but you, Nile Rogers, you're right. They're wrong, but you're right. Now I know I'm really in trouble. <laughs> so now my brain starts thinking, right? The, the drive shaft is turning. Yeah. And, um, and I go, uh-oh, uh, 
I said, yeah, but you know, it's like such a corny tune. And he just stops me dead in my tracks. And he says, nah, let me tell you something. Now, you, you have to, to understand this. You have to put this in historical perspective. Um, in those days, if you were number one, you were making lots of money. That was a big record. You would probably sold a million or more. And in, uh, if you were in the top 40 on the Billboard charts, you probably sold a million. If you remember the old Billboard chart mm -hmm. with the dot behind it or the triangle was platinum, um, if you were in the top 40, almost every record had that dot, which represented a million seller. And so Ted said to me, very clearly, in plain English, in no uncertain terms, mm -hmm. he said, Niall, do you know that any record in the top 40 is a great composition? I said, a great composition? How can you say something so mm -hmm. damn ridiculous? <laughs> That's me talking to yeah. Ted Dunbar. And he says, let me tell you something. Any record in the top 40 is a great composition. Mm -hmm. And I said, why would you say that? He says, because it speaks to the souls of a million strangers. Amen. I was like, wow. Even telling you the story now, it almost makes me want yeah. to cry. Because I realized that that was maybe the most powerful lesson mm -hmm. I ever got as an artist. Um, what do I want to do? Why am I practicing all these hours? Mm -hmm. I want to speak to people that I'll never meet. Mm -hmm. I want to speak to the souls of a million strangers. I want to tell them my truth. And hopefully that'll resonate somewhere deep within their souls. And they will become a part of my family in a way. And that's what's important to me. That I believe that we're all part of this bigger family. This global family. And... They don't translate the lyrics to, to my songs. They sing it in English, and it still means something to them. So I understood in that moment that when we compose a piece of music, unlike a lot of other things, typically they don't get translated. If it's a hit, it stays a hit in the language. I mean, look at Macarena. Everybody yeah. was going crazy. Well, We Are Family means a million different things to a million different people. Like, you know what, that's associated with... For me, it was growing up and going to the bar mitzvahs and my Holocaust survivor grandparents coming up to light the candles and that We Are Family was the song. You know, right. we didn't, I didn't know where it came from, the, right. your whole background, 13 years old, like there's Bubby and Zadie, to, you know, discoing up here, <laughs> you know, like, but that is what music is and this legacy of this unpretentious style of playing, you know, even though you can play around the neck and you know go you know drive people in circles with the the technical aspect of it people react to that raw emotion of just like the i think the pocket of the uh you know the actual song being able to dance to it being able to groove to it and those are universal feelings and I, actually you said you just met omer fetty he's a disciple of you you know he's I a know. kid who can jazz it up the neck and do whatever he wants but mood is a great lick and at the end of the day i heard it i said this is a great lick, and this is going to make people go crazy. All they had to do was not screw up the lyrics, right. <laughs> and they're and they're in shape. <laughs> but like now that it's the you know I see it with the this comeback of guitar-based pop music. Everything's sounding a bit more like disco funk, like even the Chili Peppers and stuff like that. I can right. see this moment coming together with this all coming back into focus big time with the guitar as a producer's instrument. Too. Well, it's so funny because I said to Pooh Bear. Um, a couple of months ago, I said, Pooh Bear, do you ever think 
this kind of groove will ever come back again. And he really just looked at me and flatly said no. Mm. And about two or three, three days later, I came back with the same groove. <laughs> <laughs> and he started singing to it. We started writing to it. And I was like, oh, uh, brother, that's... It's I instinctive. Mean, if we it's, had another yeah. day, yeah. we would have probably nailed a real song. Oh. But I, I just felt in my heart that there's something undeniable about groove music. There's something really... You know, look, man, I could, I could play jazz all day long. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, Omar, I mean, he and I, we just, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't believe that at the end of our session, of we wrote five great funky pop tunes, yeah. like, in two hours. You know what we did at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. Cherokee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was For like, you guys. And it was like, like nothing to it. it was like, That's incredible. One, two. One, two, I love it. I like would love to have seen it. that. Please tell me you filmed that one. <laughs> no, we didn't. We were just so you just torched around. through the real book. No, you just like go all the way through all those what, standards what, and those American. Well, well what happened was I uh, I'm doing a big. Uh, you know, auction at the end of the year for the Family Foundation. I'm like, I have hundreds of great instruments. So I was showing him one little film that I did uh, because I have the rarest Django Reinhardt Selma guitar other than the one that was owned by Django himself. So I was showing him the little film about it and then I played uh, Limehouse Blues, which he knew. Hey, what is he? Twenty-one years old. He's incredible. Years he, old? He's got all the right influences. So I, so I did a little video and I, sh and I have the chart written out and I'm playing Limehouse Blues and you know what he said to me? Proudest moment of my mm -hmm. life. He said, "Damn, is that Django?" I like, know. Wow. That's me. He's like, "What?" And that's how we got into it. And he says, "Damn, get down." So you're auctioning off that guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! This is I'm gonna have to be part, I'm gonna have to partake in this auction. It's it's um, pretty sick. I, I really, really greatly appreciate you coming here, telling your story, being part of what we're trying to do here with this Illmatic NFT. And I know that we're excited to uh, you know, have the music and the donations from this thing go to an incredible cause. Thank you so much for being part of this. Oh, man. It's my pleasure. T-Bone, too. Burnett, who's one of my right. mentors and friends. Love him. He produced the, the Pooh Bear record with me. But listening to his stories about being on tour with Dylan and you know, the he's sort of like Yoda, you know, where he can play all his instruments. But yeah. when we're in the studio, it was always an insecurity for me to always have my instrument in hand. And the, the entire time I worked with him, I never saw him once try and, you know, show us, you know, he's just like, hey, man, like, right. Pooh Bear was like, is he even producing this record? I said, he is. It took me a while to understand what a producer did, but he is by not. Right. He is by letting you creatively do every, and by putting the framework to allow us to be great. And that's one of those things where I just love the journeyman stories. And the, with Nas, you know, the craziest thing ever, and this is not something I'm sure that's like would end up in this conversation, but I sat on the plane with him and I was reading this like book called 33 and a Third. It was how different records are made. Mm -hmm. And my friend was like, Jared, you should read this one about Celine Dion. And, you know, a little embarrassing, you know, I'm sitting next to Nas, who's like a real hip hop cat. And he's like, what are you reading? I said, well, it's actually about the circle of taste. And how sometimes in society it can go around so far that something that's considered cheesy or bad 
becomes the actual gold <coughs> standard of popular. Right. And he's like, that's interesting. And then he's like, can you send me the book? And I sent it to him and he read it. Right. But like, that's the curious mind thing. It's like, there is value in everything that came before the Celine Dion, the, you know, the, the Paul Ankas, the Jingle Mans, the, I used to love, you know, I always say I'm a combo of my influences come from Bob Dylan and Weird Al. <laughs> you know, it's like I've made a career out of just like doing thir- capturing people's attention in thirty seconds. Right. If I don't get it immediately, they're gone, and that's what the jingle so is. So you're you're me, bro. That's <laughs> it's funny. That yesterday, so you know, Omir was telling me like he said, "Now I've uh, totally adopted your thing," and I said, "What thing?" He says, "The fact that you start every song with the hook," mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh." How did you find out about that? He said, well, I read about it and I listened. And I said, uh, he was telling me about um, Shakira. I said, oh, interestingly, um, she's one of the people who fired me because I said to her, hey, Shakira, this is a really good song, but I'd like to start it with the hook. And she says, what are you talking about? Songs don't start with the hook. I said, well, I'm sitting here with you because you like all of my songs. Can you sing one of them for me? And she sang one. And I said, can you sing another one? She sang another one. Can you sing another one? And I said, every last one of those songs the started with top. the hook. And I says, and when I did Let's Dance with Bully, he had written a folk song and he was singing some other stuff and then he eventually got to Let's Dance which was his idea of the hook mm-hmm. and also the title of the song. Mm-hmm. So he, he started it, he was going, um, uh, if you say run, I'll run with you. And he had a whole different thing going, jing, jing, mm-hmm. if you say run, I'll run with you. So I was like, oh, wow, dude, this is what do you call this song? He says, let's dance. Now, what had happened is he had already hired me to do an album of hits. So that's what I was charged with. That was my job. Mm -hmm. Now I want you to do what you do best. Okay, David, what's that? Hits. What? David Bowie wants hits? Like, you're the coolest guy in the world and you give a fuck about hits? (laughs) And he was like, yeah. He didn't realize that I wanted to do a flop because I was coming off of the whole Disco Sucks thing the last thing I wanted was a pop hit with David Bowie. Like, oh no, they're gonna kill me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I made David's disco record. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> um, but then when he said that he wanted a hit, I really took him seriously because I said to myself, if David Bowie did a pop R&B hit, that would actually be art. Because <laughs> right? he, he was just coming off of Scary Monsters. Yeah. This Let's Dance is so not Scary Monsters. I mean, my entry point into David Bowie as a kid growing up in the suburbs is Let's Dance. Like, I didn't know, have context of like anything prior, the glam rock, the folk stuff. And I was like, I just knew him as the big shoulder pads dancing on much <laughs> right, music right, right, right. in Canada. And I'm like, wow, like that. I didn't know the whole context of the setup of that. Yeah, no, it was like, you know, give me a pop album. And he didn't say a pop song, he said a pop album. So that what everything concept. had to be. Um, this shit. Um, even though I know we're probably going over time, but you might just want to know this stuff because I do. You probably trust have, me. If you, got you probably time, haven't read, I got the, time. You haven't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when he said that to me, I was like, oh, "Wow, this is really fucked up." Because 
I thought that he was trying to see if I was a sycophant and mm -hmm. was just going to tell him what he did was great, no matter what. And I, I just couldn't do that because I knew what my job was, give him an album of hits. So I called every person that I knew who knew Bowie, including his soon-to-be wife. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, everybody swore to me that David was not that kind of guy who would try and trick me. They said, if he thinks it's really a hit, he really thinks it's a hit. I was like, whoa, now what the hell do I do? So I knew that David was a jazz fanatic, and I knew that he understood the vernacular. So I said to him the magic words. I said, hey, David, can I do an arrangement of this song? Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Bam. That's and awesome. I changed it into what we did. And then I says, now I just want you to do me one favor. He says, what? You know that part that you were singing in my bedroom? Mm -hmm. <laughs> can you start the song with that? Oh my what do you God. mean? I want the first words out of your mouth to be, let's dance. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. That's incredible. And you can hear there's a demo on YouTube. You can actually hear us doing that demo where he's singing it for the first time the way I rearranged it. And you could also hear me responding within a matter of seconds because obviously I had written out the charts for some jazz dudes who uh, we didn't even know in uh, Switzerland. We were recording at uh, Mountain Studios, which were owned by Queen at yep. the time. And um, so Claude Knobs, uh, the CEO of Montreux Jazz Festival, just hired some jazz dudes who I said, look, just give me guys who can read music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't care if they can play well enough, just they can read music, I'll lead the band, it'll be fine. And um, they read, you know, we laid the charts out and we recorded the rehearsal. And within seconds, I knew it was the shit. And you hear somebody screaming, well, you think it's Bowie because we have an open mic and he's singing along with us. <laughs> but it's actually me. <laughs> I go, woo! <laughs> this shit was killing right from the word go. Oh, and I gotta I was, hear this. Yeah, it's so on, it's on YouTube. YouTube. I swear to you, it's, a, it's, it's uh, and it was, you know, when you're a composer and an arranger, you can hear it, you know, I don't, I mean, I sort of compose on piano, but I really compose on guitar and then transpose it to the piano and mm -hmm. make sure my voice leadings are right and things like that. And, you know, and I don't have parallel fits and mm -hmm. unison, except for what I want, you mm -hmm. know, things like, you know, so I had just written out a basic chart for these guys to groove to, to see if this was wow. right and to see if David would accept it. And you could hear him being a little dubious at the beginning. He even says to the band, he says, okay guys, nothing really can go wrong here, but if it does go wrong, you're gonna get a 20 franc fine. Think of yourselves as the James Brown yes. band. <laughs> 20 franc fine for anybody who screws up on Niles charts here. So we play it and we go, da now and I'm playing oh. funk style, oh. unlike on the record. Yeah. So the the demo is actually funkier than the record. Oh my god! Now like drier I'm, guitar style. Cause it, yeah, because like, it's just me, another guitar player, a bass player, and a drummer. So there's no. It's just a quartet, and it's got to be funky. And I didn't think the Swiss guy could do my part, so I just have him playing. And I'm playing. Chicka chicken, chicka tink, 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 ch
B flat minor thirteen and shit, and you know, and Bowie freaks out, and it's like. So anyway, um, that's that story, and just quickly, the story of Daft Punk. Get lucky. I was oh. telling this Omir yesterday. He was saying, so blah 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 blah. How did you do that? And I said, to be honest with you, uh, they came to our apartment, and they said um, we want to play some demos. Now I swear to you. I never remember them playing any demos because they told me the concept of the album and at that moment I was sold. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't play any music, right? I told them I don't want to hear it. Yeah. I said, I'll get to the studio, I'll write the charts out. You don't know. I don't want yeah. to hear it. Don't I'm a professional. Yeah. I don't need it. I don't what the fuck I need that. No, I'll write the charts out and play it. But they told me they wanted an album that was from the era before the internet existed. And I said, what do you mean exactly? They said, we want an album made the way albums were made when we were growing up. I said, oh, cool. Little did they know that Electric Lady Studios, where we recorded that song, yeah. I recorded three songs with them there, uh, was the studio that we recorded Sheik's first single. <laughs> so when I said to to Thomas, I said, you know, you're standing in exactly the same spot Bernard was standing in when we cut Dance, Dance, Dance. He said, you cut Dance, Dance, Dance here? And he went, how do you make Chic Records? Just like he said to me yesterday. I, he said, how do you make Chic Records? I said, well, I'll tell you how I made that record. <laughs> um, when Gimon, uh, no, Thomas asked me, how do you make Chic Records? I, I said, play the demo for me. I wrote out the chart. I said, now turn all that other shit off and just let me play with the drums. <laughs> <laughs> That's the groove right there. That is... Let me set up the groove. And then <sighs> everybody else had to come back and retract to me. The discipline of that funk is so genius because in the wrong hands, it could be repetitive. Right. Every part of that record to me is interesting. Right. All the way from top to bottom, the texture, the imperfections, all that stuff exactly. is really what, what, why I think it lasts as long as it does. There's a lot of funky songs that come out, you know, yeah. Maroon 5's funky. Of course. But there's, I love Maroon 5, don't get me yeah, wrong. A little bit of it is disposable. You know, it's meant for New Music Friday, mm -hmm. you know, fit in the algorithm. But then there's other copyrights, like, you know, these yeah. things that, are, that just live forever. And, you know, that's the hardest thing. How do you take a moment, make it live forever, and also be able to reach lots of people. And that comes down to, you know, people, you know, I think that before the internet, there was this, you know, quest for perfection using the tools that you had. Existed. And now the quest for perfection is so clean that, like, what am I, I sometimes don't even know what I'm listening to. Right. That's exactly right. And it's interesting because they are music for robots, but they're not robots. They're sloppy robots. I love them. So, you know, the, the interesting thing is that I've always believed in the concept of Daft Punk. So when they came into my life, they came into my life very early. If you mm -hmm. open up their first album, you'll see there's a Sheik record on the floor. Wow. When you open up the gatefold, wow. you'll see like right there is Sheik. So they started out, uh, when they had their listening party, they told me that their first album was dedicated to my partner who had just died a few oh. months before that. And you could hear the whole album yeah. is loaded with Sheik samples and you know, little snippets of, of our tunes that they put together into their brilliant first album. And um, so now we're finally playing together. And this, to them, was the very first time 
they were ever making a proper studio album. They said they had never made a record without, they never made a record with other people before until they did the soundtrack for Tron. Mm -hmm. And they said that experience was so amazing. They were now going to try and do a Daft Punk record with other people. And it wound up being, you know, when you think about this historically, there had never been an album that won record of the year that was a dance-oriented album since Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. So Saturday Night Fever, Random Access Memories. Like that's how long that's... it took. It took from 1977 <sighs> until 2013 or whenever we put that record wow. out to get album of the year as a dance record. Wow, for that's the insane. I do, uh, last thing I'll say is I do appreciate all the genres that you've touched and I've seen, I'm a country fan too and uh, I saw that recently you worked with Breland, and oh, yeah, I, love I love the Breland. changing landscape of country music. Isn't that amazing it's, what's happening right now? It's amazing. And um, I, you know, who are some artists that you're dying to work with, you know, uh, in your world that are sort of on your, the, your sort of wish list at the moment? So right now I've been fortunate enough to play and write with people that I'm loving. Like, I love working with Stara. Um, Genius. She's kicking my ass. She is unbelievable. Uh, tomorrow I'm getting ready to do my first uh, writing session um, with James Fauntleroy. Mm -hmm. And he and Another I, genius. we vibe like crazy. Mm -hmm. And he and Will I Am, the three of us are going to write together. And so Will just wanted to write with me. And I said, you know what, man, I'm in California. James and I hooked up on my little Apple radio show. I said, I'm dying to fucking work with this guy. Yeah. Um, so I said, do you mind if I bring him along? Because I think the three of us would just kill. That's going to be funky. He's a powerhouse. He's a monster. Who's the first guy to wear a face mask? <laughs> <laughs> Did you see a few years, at the years ago at the Grammys, he was wearing the mask before everyone. I was like, why would somebody be wearing a mask? Right. Yeah, yeah oh. I, I can't. I'm, uh, so I, I did uh, that uh, Stara. I just did Remy Wolf, who mm -hmm. I think she's the shit. Um, you know, he's, all these people are like, you know, 20, 21, 22 years old, and they're real musical, I, I would almost say prodigies. They're just so sharp with their shit. I mean, the way she can write, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I just wonder where does that come from? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I even said yesterday, once when we started playing, and he says, you know why I have the name that I have? I says, no. He says, well, because your drummer was Omar Hakim, and my father was a fan of like Omar Hakim, and I'm a fan of you, and I know Omar was your drummer for a long time. I said, not only for a long time. You won't know this story, but Omar was my drummer when he was 16 years old, but he couldn't play in bars yet. So he was my drummer in the daytime, and Tony Thompson, our sheet drummer, was our drummer at night. So that's how long I've known Omar, and he's also on uh, uh, Random Access Memories. Wow. Yeah, Omar's wow. the drummer, not on, on, um, uh, not on uh, Get Lucky, but he is the drummer on uh, Lose Yourself to Dance that's, and Give Life Back to Music. Oh, that's awesome. Re re I know, like the whole world just, we've my world has just sort of done that. Full, well, like you said, all the, the sources are out there with the Internet of Things for everyone to learn their history. It's, you know, I'm, this, this was like a history lesson for me. I love this stuff. Being able to like, I'm probably going to tear into your book tonight as well. Uh, I just ordered it on Amazon because oh, cool. on Jimmy Say, so I'm the music guy. He's the words guy at our company. 
we uh, we're kind of like a 1940s studio, so we get together we're like, oh, we're gonna make a wrestling picture, and we meet up, <laughs> you know, at the kitchen table, and I'm like, I'm gonna write a bunch of music, and he's like, I'll write the story, and we meet up a week later, and we're ready to go. So like, he, uh, it's incredible having, um, you know, the hardest, the, the easiest thing in the world is the is to uh, access the the information that's available in the universe. The hardest thing is actually digesting it. There's right. so much stuff coming at us all the time, finding the right things at the right time that ignite the right, you know, process. And, you know, in this weird world of podcasts that we're building right now, when I worked on the first one with Pooh Bear, The Old Weird America, is a book by Grail Marcus talking mm -hmm. about how, like, you know, we I gave Jimmy 20 books I wanted to read to, to get ready for it, but he ended up distilling all of it into, you know, just everything from, uh, you know, just folk history of America to understanding to me, what I was trying to recreate in that project was uh, someone like Robbie Robertson, how mm -hmm. they were like, a, they represent all of American music for a certain time frame. And the guy is a weird Canadian who, you know, makes his way into Bob Dylan, you know, the music of the South, playing with Ronnie Hawkins, playing with everything from Southern rock to uh, Roots, Americana, to even French music and stuff like that. And seeing the Venn diagram of everyone who showed up at the last waltz and how many uh, cultures it influences but that to me being able to put all those pieces together into something interesting like a you know a band out of France who wants to make a funk record based on something you did <laughs> in New York in the 1970s like what is that like how does that even happen because all the information is just out there and you never know where those you know sort of pieces get put together yeah, we, we could go on all day I love this <laughs> thank you so much for making time you got it bro an incredible conversation. I am thrilled that I even got to spend what was supposed to be 10 minutes and it turned into much more than that with Niall. He was so gracious with his time. Uh, I, uh, on the heels of this conversation, went and devoured his autobiography and I certainly suggest that you uh, do it as well. It's probably one of the greatest uh, autobiographies ever penned. And if you didn't realize uh, how much of a journeyman he is in his career it'll become apparent to you when you see that he you know was born to these incredible new york uh hipster parents and uh that his life brought him back and forth between emerging music scenes in los angeles and new york and how his role as a super producer of his own group led him to produce these incredible array of artists from madonna to david bowie to duran duran pharrell daft punk and so much more in between. Check out uh, more episodes. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any place where you get your podcasts. And please uh, go check out the Nile Rogers autobiography. If you get a chance, uh, go check it out. You can buy it with one click on uh, Amazon, or you can uh, check it out from your favorite library or buy it at a bookstore. Thank you for joining. I'm Jared Goodstat, and this was a very special episode of Occupational Therapy. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts